HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Did you know that you can stream The French Chef with Julia Child on the PBS Documentaries Prime Video channel? See where America's obsession with cooking shows began and start your free trial today. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen podcast, the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we're featuring the 2022 Taste of Santa Barbara Rebuilding Our Food System panel discussion. In today's episode, we'll hear from a rancher putting regenerative methods into practice, a food sovereignty activist, a farmer who formed a cooperative to mill grain, and a scientist working to reduce food waste. Stay with us. We'll be right back. We're breaking with our usual format to share more from the 2022 Taste of Santa Barbara, hosted by the Santa Barbara Culinary Experience. The Taste of Santa Barbara is a county-wide celebration of food and drink showcasing the area's growers, makers, artisans, and hospitality industry. In episode 159, we brought you to the renowned Saturday Santa Barbara Farmers Market to hear from cooking teacher Pascal Beal and local chef Jeremy Tummel of La Paloma Cafe. Today, we're giving you a front row seat at the Rebuilding Our Food System panel discussion. It features four speakers representing very different aspects of the Santa Barbara County food system. It was organized with support from our friends at the Santa Barbara County Food Action Network, also known as SBC Fan. For more about SBC Fan, 
listen to our interview in episode 155 with its executive director, Shakira Miracle. The panel highlights just a few of the many innovators in the Santa Barbara region helping rebuild our food system into a more sustainable and ethical one. It also demonstrates the depth of innovation around Santa Barbara, which can serve as a model for the nation. The discussion was recorded in front of a live audience at Santa Barbara City College's Garvin Theater on May 21st, 2022. Without further ado, here's the conversation, moderated by yours truly. All right. So as Shakira said, I'm Todd Shulkin. I'm the executive director of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. Uh, I work with Eric Spivey, who you heard from before. And uh, Eric didn't mention that we have that long name because Julia wanted it that way. She wanted as much emphasis on what we're doing as, as uh, her remembrance and legacy. And I'm really pleased to be joined by um, four people who are all working on rebuilding the food system in unique ways, in different lanes. But hopefully from the conversation, we'll hear um, how it... Um, kind of all comes together and that also hear how it has to work in different areas for it all to change because it's such a big and vast thing. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce our uh, panelists and I'll, I'll start from my left. Um, the far left is Sarah Koyo, who is Shumash Duhona Odom. Very smartly brought some groupies. I did. I'm and just hold this like this. <laughs> not always like this. Well, enjoy it. And uh, Sarah's based in Ventura, where she works to revitalize the wider Shumash community and their connections to traditional foods and medicine through food sovereignty, ethnobotany, and preserving traditional indigenous knowledge, which she's going to tell us more about. And also to my left is uh, Melissa Sarongan. Uh, she is a co-owner and farmer at Piedra Saucy Wine and Bread in Lombok. Uh, she coordinates a cooperative equipment sharing alliance, providing local farmers critical regional infrastructure to get food from their farms to your table. She does lots of other things, but I think she's going to focus on that today. On my right is uh, Stefan Selber. I changed your name. It's Selber, right? Yeah. Yes. We were going French. Um, <laughs> Stefan is a next-generation farmer. He, uh, he dressing the part, too. Uh, he is operations manager at his family's 1,000-acre Las Cumbres Ranch in Los Alamos. And there, they're rebuilding the soil with cows via rotational grazing and closed-loop systems designed to get back to the land more than is extracted from it. And on my far right is Jessica Vieira. And she's the Senior Director of Sustainability at Appeal Sciences, uh, which is, has their global headquarters in Goleta. And uh, I will just shout out to Appeal that they have stuck with us through all the planning for the Santa Barbara Culinary Experience going back several years. So we're very appreciative. That's how committed they are to the topic. And at Appeal, uh, Jessica leads Appeal's sustainability efforts and she applies data-driven analysis and life cycle thinking 
to maximize appeals positive impact related to climate change and food waste. Food waste, and she's gonna explain what that means, because I'm not sure I totally know, but it sounds good. <laughs> so let's start the, the, the discussion. I'm, I'm basically asking uh, the panelists the same broad question. Um, I can repeat it as we go through as necessary, but basically what I wanted to do is let each of them speak from their own perspective and what they're doing of how they're an actor in rebuilding the food system in Santa Barbara County and, and more widely in the region. So, Sarah, would you, would you start and tell us what, how you interpret that and what that means and what you do? Okay. Um, uh, I would say Siochton, but like, I'm realizing that like, I'm just like really close to this space and like, I don't know if I necessarily have ancestry here. So, uh, yeah, sorry, I'm, I'm transitioning out of naming Siochton as an ancestral village and kind of naming it as more of a, like a new village for me. Um, reconnecting here with my cousins. Um, and let's see what else. Swahil hil nakalamu hilimu, um, kushichish hil iti, um, kakinaliu. Um, thank you all for being here. I'm Sarah Coyle, um, and I have ancestry in, in Shumash here in Shumwich, um, and, and in Tawana Atam, as, as was said, and Akuma, and, um, Seri, and possibly Mayo. So that's really cool on my grandpa's side. Um, yeah, so, um, that's my ancestors, and I just, every time I, I'm in a, new place I'm introducing myself and I'm also acknowledging all the the people that stand behind me all the spirits all my ancestors um and my community who I, I'm accountable to um and so um the work that I do in rebuilding the food systems right <laughs> um so I'm so for initially I wanted to address also is that like the work that I do isn't human-centered um because we need to take ourselves out of that hierarchical position um, and saying that we are the like top predator, or even just using hierarchies um, in general. Um, we are a part of a, of a system, right? We are a part of, um, we're in relationship. And that's, I think the first thing that we need to acknowledge is that, um, is that we are all in relationship to one another, that we're all in relationship to the land, to the plants, to the food that we eat. Um, food is medicine and, um, and that finding solutions in a, in a framework of looking at it that is human centered, I think is not sustainable, um, because it doesn't acknowledge that we are a part of something bigger than just humans. Um, and that if we don't do something as people who are destroying the world, right, that like our humans will not continue as humanity. So, um, yeah, so what I do personally um, and if, with my work, um, with my life, is um, really revitalizing my culture, and that's uh, an important part of our food system because food sovereignty is, like, goes beyond just when you're, when you're thinking about food. Um, like I said, is uh, indigenizing food systems so that you're thinking about locally, right? Thinking locally first. Um, and 
Yeah, I have a lot to say about this huge whole topic, so I'm trying to keep it like focused. <laughs> um, yeah, I I work with an auntie who's a botanist who has had um, a lot of experience with our indigenous plants, our native plants that are um, from this area, um, who who thrive in this area, um, and and learning our food as medicine and our learning our medicines as medicines, um, trying to be autonomous and work um, and create a mutual aid, right, for elders, for youth, especially that happened during COVID um, when we go out and we gather um, and doing that in a, in a respectful way um, and learning what it means to be in relationship with our plant relatives and our animal relatives. Um, understanding the reciprocity that happens and that it takes time and that it can't happen um, in one setting, right? In one sitting, going outside and sitting with a plant, um, that you have to build a relationship. Just like you have to build trust, just like you have to, you know, it takes time. It takes um, multiple experiences with people and with those plants and those animals. Um, so yeah, that's something that I've been doing um, and in my job. Um, we're really trying to reconnect our indigenous peoples with our medicines. Um, we'll have workshops with elderberry, which is a really important um, immune booster. Um, our elderberries here are really special and really potent. Um, and so we've been teaching them just about um, that in, in general, um, and that's just one medicine. And so we're trying to kind of focus on one plant at a time because like I said, it takes time and it takes a lot to like really uh, make a connection and make a relationship. So, um, so yeah, I think it's important to understand the slowness of what it means to, to have relationship with plants and food. Um, but then also, of course, it's really difficult to do that in a world of capitalism. So, yeah. So, I mean, I also do work in direct action um, in dismantling the systems. And I think it's really important to acknowledge both that like, as we're rebuilding these food systems, as we're rebuilding these things, is that we also have to do the work to dismantle the systems that are not working for us. Um, so I do work in, on both sides. Um, I'm trying to balance that out and also make a living and make rent. So um, yeah, so that's okay. I'll stop talking now. <laughs> no, great. Well, I think that's a great act. I'm going to help the transition to what Melissa does because you were talking about plants and and their necessity and, and changing the plants we were using to feed and heal our bodies from certain ones or mass-produced ones to ones that were here a long time and kind of neglected and ignored. And I, I feel like that relates to, Melissa, how, how you're working to rebuild the system. So go ahead. Right. So um, I began farming um, in 2012, um, and at the time, there were um, there were not a whole lot of grain farmers in uh, Santa Barbara County who were doing what I was doing, which is to mill uh, both mill and bake and bring the food to the farmers market. And I really wanted everything. I really wanted my farming to be um, more sustainable. But organic grain farming was not really um, something that grain was more of a commodity than a uh, than uh, this um, than um, a regenerative farming crop. Um, 
we were very lucky at the time uh, when we started to um, have a seed cleaner in Lompoc, a very long time seed cleaner that people would bring their crops to, like their beans or their grain, and um, uh, have the harvest brought in and all of the different plant materials, both the harvest that they wanted and the other um, uh, plant materials that were not useful to them to get separated out, cleaned, bagged, and ready for production. Um, a few years ago, that seed cleaner was um, uh, closed down. And uh, so then we had a very hard time reconciling the fact that we had this really beautiful local crop that we were bringing to our farmer's market. and But we, could, we had to increase our food miles by, by hundreds of miles to be able to ship our harvest out, to, be, to get it cleaned and get it bagged so that we could then use it. So one of the things Which that right there starts to undermine organic, local... Organic, right? local, uh, environmental issues with food systems. And so we were really lucky that the Santa Barbara County Food Action Network uh, gave us access to this grant money to help us replace that seed cleaner and some other choice equipment that could help us um, uh, that could help us uh, help other farmers make better choices in regenerative farming. So uh, a no-till drill, for example, or if some of us wanted to do different, try out different little heirloom uh, grains that we have these little mini combines or like little ride-along mowers so that we could have smaller uh, harvesting machines as opposed to these really very large industrial harvesters. And so... Um, what we were able to do was not only make this uh, equipment accessible to a bunch of different farmers through sharing, but also be able to give them a community that was centered around a real asset. And I think that that is very important if we're talking about the infrastructure of being able to help people, um, of being able to help people with uh, 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 emerging farmers or farmers who have been longtime. Um, conventional farmers to help them make, to empower them to make different choices if they want to move into a more climate-friendly um, farming method. And so for us, that has been a really wonderful thing to have all of this equipment centered uh, around, that, that the community, that our farmers could center around so that then we could also build extra community. So um, uh, so we have this network now where um, there are new farmers and there are older farmers and everyone is learning from each other. We have these Zoom calls, we have uh, panel discussions, bring in guest speakers, uh, the um, grain Col uh, California Grain Growers Association will come in and talk about the different grains that, uh, that they have available um, um, or the different research that they do. Different bakers from, uh, uh, from all over California who want to talk about, who want to, who want to connect with grain growers. And so we have built around these assets these larger echoes of networking and community and collaboration, um, which um, we think really has so much actually to do with the fact that there is a real benefit to having, like people have to talk to each other and people have to intersect to be able to use this equipment. And so that has in a time of great isolation and often being a farmer it can be very isolating as well. But um, in a time of great isolation with the 
power of Zoom, we have been able to create this community that is now uh, much more robust and uh, much more open, which also helps a lot of newer, younger, emerging farmers because a lot of those people do not have the same kinds of connections, uh, generational connections, that um, uh, people who are multi-generational have. So uh, multi-generational farmers. So this is the kind of thing that um, we have been doing from our side is helping all of those smaller farmers build thriving businesses more um, quickly and thriving businesses where they are very much in power of their decisions to um, of their farming decisions, whether they be regenerative, reducing food miles, um, so that they can keep on going. Um, and keep on building their equity and, um, and keep on building their thriving businesses and therefore, um, increase their, um, increase their ability to make, keep on making those kinds of decisions. We'll be back with more from the Rebuilding Our Food System panel discussion at the 2022 Taste of Santa Barbara after this short break. Stay with us. Did you know that you can stream The French Chef with Julia Child on the PBS Documentaries Prime video channel? Start your free trial today and see where America's obsession with cooking shows began with one spirited woman who made French cuisine a spectator sport and forever changed the way we cook, eat, and think about food. In addition to The French Chef, the PBS Documentaries Prime video channel features a vast library of high-quality, thought-provoking, factual programs for curious viewers. All from America's trusted home for documentaries, PBS. We're moving from uh, grains to animals, so can you tell us about how how your family's uh, ranch is addressing that? All right, so at Los Cumbres Ranch, we are a holistically managed ranch. We have a breed called Bonsmara, and we're right at the north end of Santa Barbara County. So for holistic management, what you do is you kind of create a holistic context, which is kind of like the plan. Like, how am I going to live uh, economically, socially, and environmentally? So you kind of set that, and then you use tools to execute that goal. For us, the main tool is holistic planned grazing, where we figure out where our cows are going to be throughout the entire year. In the wet season, we move them quickly. And in the dry season, we move them slowly. But we have a plan, right? And what happens is because we're doing this, we're seeing an incredible shift from an annual grassland to a perennial grassland. A perennial plants, which are plants that have roots that are living year-round, and they're sequestering carbon by building themselves and not oxidizing or dying off. And so then we have our cows, which is like the special awesome part. So these Bonsmarie cows were bred for a Mediterranean environment, so they really thrive in Santa Barbara County. They browse as well as graze, which is like super important for me because I'm so allergic to poison oak. And they're happy to take big bites and eat it. They eat poison oak. Easy. They're stoked about it. It's awesome. We all need these cows. Should bring them hiking. Yeah. (laughs) Um, They are. We also use them for fire mitigation. So we, I think last year the fire marshal came and realized they didn't have to do anything on our property because we'll take the cows do mob grazing and just crush brush that's been dead or easy to catch fire back into the soil. 
They taste incredible, which is the really important part because they're tender and they thrive in this environment. You're talking about the cows, the cows. after they've been slaughtered. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. <laughs> you moved really quickly from <laughs> so, many things, so many things we've got to talk <laughs> about. Um, yeah. So that's, that's also important because they are, they're meat. They're not just fire mitigators or helping regenerate soil. They can do all of these things. Um, yeah. I think that's, let's see if there's anything else. They climb mountains. That's another thing I got to talk about. So we were just checking the cows today. They're in one of the bigger pastures and they were just sky high on a mountain that's like this. We're just like, okay. Perfect. <laughs> and maybe for the audience, you can talk about, because I think something gets lost, there will obviously be people in the audience who don't eat meat or are vegan, so, but, yeah. but obviously, well, maybe not obviously, but animals are important, of, even back to what Zara talked about, about the overall environment and life cycle, all animals. We, we need animals on Earth to have the wider community survive. Yeah. There used to be a lot more animals. <laughs> exactly. Now there's a lot more humans. So, so what's the connection between so the, if the kind of earth management, land management that you're doing that's preservative and essentially raising cattle for So, water? like I said, we're getting perennial plants. We have loads of needle grass, which is like the California grass. It's covered. It's, it used to be all oxidized grass. So we're setting all of these perennial plants that are coming in because we're creating a grazing tolerant environment with the plant moving, right? So it's it's we're sequestering carbon because these plants are living year round. It's not it's not going to catch fire because they they stay they're alive. They're not like dead brush that's oxidized that could easily catch fire. So that's how we're we're literally regenerating California land by managing the cows in a way that's beneficial to the land. It's like that. It's it's not the cow's fault <laughs> that. This is, uh, we have so many problems. It's that, uh, the management of them, the animals are an integral part in restoring ecosystems. And so, like I said, we have a local beef, tastes great in Santa Barbara County, and it's regenerating rangeland. That's how we're rebuilding food systems. Which I think is, for the audience, a really interesting reframing of people may have read about feedlots and all the, the negative effects of, of, of animal raising and consumption. But this is rebalancing it so that actually you're raising cows in a way that actually is fighting climate change rather than contributing. Yeah, so. you said it so good. That's awesome. That's exactly what we're doing. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Just, I, I know some people might have been thinking it. So I thought can you it tell us that. what the? I'm so sorry to interrupt. Yeah, can you tell us what this magical breed of cows is? Bonsmara cattle. Bonsmara cattle. Yeah, they're, okay. they're from they're from South Africa, so they were bred in a really arid and dry climate, similar to ours. And we found when we put them here that they just they thrive. Amazing. Yeah. And are you the only people raising these cows, or it's not more mm, common? There's a couple other ranches which we're connected to, which raise the cows in different parts. One in Northern California, and one in Georgia. He's awesome. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so we're the we're the only ones who are doing it in Santa Barbara County. We'll talk more about that when I turn it over to Jessica. And Jessica, <laughs> Jessica's here from Appeal, and, and obviously she's representing a different kind of actor that is on the corporate stage and looking at it globally. So, um, and leading their sustainability effort, which I learned has been baked in since the founding of Appeal. So Jessica, tell us more about how Appeal's working on rebuilding our food system. Sure. And, and I mean, it's really inspiring to hear how all of these different production practices are contributing to rebuilding a better food system. 
Um, appeal kind of comes in after that stage. Uh, appeal was founded here in Santa Barbara um, by graduate students out of UC, UCSB um, almost 10 years ago now. And we really have been focused since the beginning on a couple of really big problems that are pervasive across the entire food system. Um, you know, today, globally, one in nine people go hungry, um, but a third of all the food that we produce for consumption goes to waste. Um, and those food waste rates are pretty consistent regardless of region, um, economic context. It's concentrated maybe in different nodes in the supply chain. Um, but it's particularly high for highly perishable foods, um, like fruits and vegetables that are also some of the most nutritious foods. Um, historically, the way that we've, you know, tried to address some of these challenges has been from the use of refrigeration, um, single use plastics, um, controlled atmosphere storage and shipping, um, a lot of, you know, solutions to the issue of perishability that, that have their own unintended um, environmental consequences. Uh, so when Appeal went and looked at this problem, um, we actually turned to nature and tried to learn from, you know, how the, the natural world was already trying to solve these problems. Uh, we really, like, view nature and the planet as the best innovator that we have and, you know, everything that we can learn from nature. Um, can make us better at solving these problems. Uh, and, and what we found, and probably not surprising to everyone, you know, when you pick an apple off of a tree, it doesn't go to mush immediately. You, it does have a shelf life. And a lot of that is because of the skin on the apple. There are certain components in that skin or peel or rind or whatever fruit or really any plant on the surface of earth that creates a barrier around the fruit that slows down the rate that water goes out and that oxygen goes in. And when oxygen goes in, that's when you see kind of the browning and quality issues on the inside. And so, you know, since our company was founded by material scientists, they really just started studying how do these peels and skins, how do they work? Um, and we're able to kind of isolate the specific parts that were creating those barrier properties. So what we've done now is we've created this edible plant-derived coating that, that goes on fruits and vegetables after they're harvested that slows down that rate of spoilage so they last about twice as long across different types of produce and, and different contexts. Um, not only has this uh, you know, helped to address the issue of food waste at different stages of the value chain, but because of how, how large you know, because everyone eats many times a day, you know, because of how large our food system is um, and because of how much food is wasted, food waste alone contributes to 8%, almost 8 to 10%, depending on the estimates, of all global greenhouse gas emissions. To grow, store, distribute, sell all of the food that goes to waste. Um, and so when you do start to reduce this waste at various stages, you're also combating climate change. And it's actually been noted as the most impactful thing that, that consumers especially can do to um, reduce the impacts of climate change is just to reduce food waste and better manage it in your home. But it's really hard when things spoil really fast. Um, so we're working on, you know, developing this product for more types of fruits and vegetables so far. 
Um, we use the product on avocados, limes, oranges, mandarins, um, mangoes, uh, organic apples, and we are uh, getting ready to launch a product for long English cucumbers where our product replaces the single-use plastic packaging wrap. Um, but we're, you know, we kind of feel like we're, <laughs> we've been racing to the starting line and are really only getting started. We've been really fortunate to have um, some really meaningful relationships with local growers um, who have, you know, some of which are using our product today, but some who have just really helped a group of scientists who really weren't food system experts by any means to understand what the challenges are. Um, so have, you know, very much benefited from being part of the community and hope that we're, you know, helping in some way too. So does the Appeal product actually keep food fresher for longer or? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it, in addition to kind of keeping the fruit and pick your fruit, right? Like an apple, you want it to stay crisp longer. Um, an orange, you want it to stay juicy. An avocado, you don't want it to turn brown. Um, but it just slows down the rate of spoilage regardless of kind of what that quality dimension is. So consumers have a better experience. It maintains the nutritional content longer. Um, I have to explain sometimes, it doesn't make the fruit better. You know, if you can't like put a bad fruit in and it won't, you know, change that but it will maintain all of the, you know, amazing practices that go into producing the most sustainable, highest quality produce. Great. We'll be right back with more of the Rebuilding Our Food System panel discussion at the 2022 Taste of Santa Barbara. Stay with us. Did you know HRN is home to not only Inside Julia's Kitchen, but more than 35 other member-supported programs which empower eaters to cultivate a radically better world. This month, we're asking you to join HRN's Summer Membership Drive. By supporting HRN, you'll become a part of a community where we see food as a key point of connection among people, culture, and the future of the planet. Please become an HRN member by making a gift during this Summer Membership Drive. You can even get some great HRN swag. I wear my HRN trucker cap all the time. Memberships include a subscription to Food Radio Insider, HRN's member newsletter. By supporting HRN, you support Inside Julia's Kitchen, as well as all of HRN's mission-driven content. Go to heritageradionetwork.org forward slash donate to become an HRN member today. Your donations are tax-deductible. Let us know what you think of today's show. Send us an email or a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org, or better yet, tweet us at juliachildjcf. I really wanted to cover, I feel like when you talk about rebuilding the food system and you talk about, you know, grass-fed beef or grain-fed beef or avocados that have a special coating on them or even organic grains, it starts to sound expensive to people and that it's a luxury rather than a necessity. And I thought um, maybe just going back to you, Sarah, to talk about these perceptions that somehow to rebuild our food system is elitist, that it's not for everyone or that it's not practical because it's inaccessible to those who have lower income or less resources. And I was just curious, you, particularly from your point of view, and, and that, that often describes many Native American peoples, that they have these challenges and 
they, in some ways, have the solutions of going way back in history. But share with us your feelings about how you approach it. Hello. Okay. Um, I think uh, go dumpster diving is like what I thought of as far as like solutions to food waste. Um, Like dumpster diving is a really great way to like dismantle the system and kind of um, get under it. And um, and the food in the dumpsters are not bad. Um, There's so much food that goes to waste. Um, Like you were saying that like so much of it is just thrown out Um, and there's a lot to, to learn about, um, how expiration dates work. Um, but yeah, if y'all are down, um, (laughs) going dumpster diving is a really great way to help, um, manage food waste. Um, and yeah. And then also like, there's a lot of work that's being done in mutual aid to like help, um, have equitable access to these really expensive foods. Right. Um, as far as like talking to grocery stores and before they, they, they throw them out and then redistributing back to houseless folks, um, redistributing to, um, food pantries. And there's a lot of really cool stuff that y'all can get involved with, um, to be able to have, to give people more access to foods that are seen as more expensive. Um, literally just like not to encourage illegal activity, but, um, (laughs) yeah, if you can, if you're down, I mean, unjust laws don't necessarily have to be followed, right? Um, civil disobedience is a thing. So, um, (laughs) if, if you're down, if you have a group of really cool people, you know, go steal the food from the stores or dumpster dive and, and literally redistribute back to people because that's like, the easiest, the, the best direct action that you can do that is like immediate, right? And that is going to help people um, who don't have access to these foods um, because they're in poverty, living in poverty because of systemic racism. And we all know this right now. We all know this by now that the systemic racism is a thing and that, um, and that, yeah, people are in poverty and that it's inequitable. Um, so yeah, that's, those are my thoughts. Um, and I'm, that's probably super radical for a lot of y'all, but, um, yeah, those are my thoughts as far as like how to make the system, uh, how to create equitable access when the system has not been dismantled yet. Um, because that's where we're at, right? Like trying to make these food systems equitable is another, is another like road, right? Um, there's different things that we can do. Like I was saying that like, dismantling the system at the same time as, as building the, the systems. Um, sorry, I, this is totally my fault. I don't know. How Just to hold, hold it, hold, if you hold it a little farther away. If I put it on my ear, it won't stay. I tried. Um, um, okay. Does that work? Yeah. Can you yeah. hear me? Okay. <laughs> Thanks. Um, yeah. So, um, but yeah, as far as like building systems where it is more equitable, I think, um, I mean, in, in a perfect world, in a beautiful world, um, we wouldn't have to pay for food that we would just, it would just be distributed to folks equitably, right? Whoever needs food gets food. Um, and so how to do that is right. Like how do we have access? How do we create equitable access to land where people can grow their own food where people can have, um, systems of redistributing of like sharing of trading, um, 
the different foods that they're growing with other people who are growing different foods that, um, that they need. Right. So in, in a perfect world, right. In, in, in the world that we're trying to build in the world that we can dream of in the world that we all want, that we should be able to dream beyond these systems. Right. Is that, how do we, how do we get there? And so, I mean, equitable access to land, I think is probably one of the first things, um, and having community gardens, um, and, yeah, and then dismantling the system at the same time. So those are my thoughts. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I'm thinking Melissa's approach might be slightly different, but go ahead, Melissa. What, what do you see, especially being a farmer, but also part of a, a winery that sells, you know, nice wine, and right. I'm guessing that your bread costs more than what they sell at Walmart. It sure does. So how do you think about that kind of reaction that people tend to have that rebuilding the food system or having healthier food or, or even, as Sarah says, that everyone should just have access to food on a non-monetary level? Like, is, is that an elitist pipe dream or is that actually something we should be striving for? I definitely think we should be striving to be able to have everyone eating healthier. I mean, and more, uh, and in a way that is, uh, that gives them much better direct access to good food. Um, one of my favorite programs in California is the Market Match Program, which is, <laughs> For those of you who don't know what it is, it is a um, a program that um, that allows that um, so uh, people who are who are EBT or CalFresh um, or I think on the federal level it's called SNAP who are, who are EBT and CalFresh users in California can use their dollars at the farmers market and you know the, one of the big problems that people have had for a very long time is that they say well but my dollars don't go very far at the farmers market. This is not a good use of the, of the amount of benefit that I get. And so the market match program is a way for people to go to the farmer's market and they can take out uh, their, you know, they can uh, get their uh, tokens or coupons uh, for uh, their um, EBT or CalFresh benefit. And they also get um, matched dollars that they can then also go and spend on fresh produce, fresh fruits and vegetables. This is an amazing benefit for all of us because it not only allows uh, people who are users of these uh, governmental benefits to make great decisions for their families, um, make great decisions on, um, on filling their uh, their kitchen with more fruits and vegetables, but it also puts people into direct contact with the people who are growing their food. Um, it reduces food miles because they're buying direct from the farmers. It is helping the farmers and small businesses, and we all know that when you support a small business that more of those dollars stay in the community than um, in than uh, when you were supporting larger companies. So all of these are wonderful benefits for our community. Um, and these are these multiple benefits and multiple motivations that are aligned are ways to keep, ways to make infrastructure and policy 
way more efficient and way more, um, way more beneficial to the community as a whole. Um, I think that when we are talking about policy, we really do need to think about what is motivating people, what kinds of choices do they want to have, and what can we do to align the motivations of a bunch of people along the chain? The consumers, the farmers, the small business owners, the restaurant owners. How can we get all of these people to benefit from a bunch of these different things? Thank you. That, that's great to know about. Mm -hmm. that's great. It's an amazing program. But, um, I, I'm curious, uh, without, can you give us an express answer of how that came about? Like, who was behind putting that program together? Oh, that's actually a really good question, and I started reading about it, but then I think I had to, then my timer went off in, in, the, in the event, so. Um, um, I believe that it is a few different agencies and a few different sponsors. So um, I know that there, if you want to go and read more about it specifically, um, and there actually might be a market match person here today. I can't remember if some of the people who know more about it. Sam Edelman is our executive director of the farmer's market, and he is the person who is responsible for making sure that those dollars, which I believe is both funded by the state of California and by some sponsors, some individual and uh, corporate sponsors, um, that uh, he's responsible for those uh, dollars to be coming into our community to be distributed to our um, to the users of CalFresh and EBT. Great, that's great to know about. So, Stefan, what's your as a rancher essentially? And certainly, there's there's a lot of talk about. I'm, I'm sure the price point for the meat that you produce is not is not the lowest. So, yeah. how does your family approach the sort of philosophy and reaction to? the importance of it versus the maybe potential inequity of it. All right, so I was thinking about this. Conventional ag, whether it be ranching or basically mostly farming, is subsidized by taxpayers because they get the farmers will get money to buy crazy chemicals and fertilizers and pesticides so they can use that on their crop and then sell it at a low price point because they can they get money. But wait, I'm okay. going, I'm going, I'm getting there. So organic farming, they don't get any help from the government. This is like the first thing I've heard where the government is supporting organic or regenerative, any form of farming, where the farmer is getting benefited from it. So I think that's awesome. I have heard of that. I'm super excited about that. That's great. For ranching, it's a little bit different. If you want to get cheaper beef, you have to buy directly from a rancher. You have to go to them and buy more. You buy like a whole cow. That'll be way cheaper than going to Walmart and buying cuts every so often. It's because... And you're supporting a rancher. When the ranchers sell it to like Walmart or like any like thing like that, they get a like I think it's like a dollar per pound. It's still it's insane. It's, it hasn't changed for over seventy years. It's not supportive at all. <laughs> so buying direct, then that match market program mm -hmm. sounds like something that is super effective. And I was just going to add because we're going to switch to national policy in a, in a second. The farmers you were talking about who are buying chemicals and doing this, they have to. Yeah, they're, they're forced. They, to. They're they're working under a system yeah. that incentivizes them to do that. So they, any farmer who decides not to, it's not because they so desire that. No, the system has been built over the last fifty some odd years. Green Revolution, exactly. Yeah. So anyone who decides, like your family, to do something differently is really bucking the system and making certain sacrifices because the easiest way is to do what's already subsidized. Yeah, but. I think a lot of us would agree what is subsidized is starting to kill us and destroy the planet. Yeah. 
and they get it's stuck. They can't do anything. They can't get out of it. They're literally forced. Farmers are forced to stay in the system. It's so scary to take a risk. Like, hey, if I change this practice, I'm not going to get this supportive check, right. and I can lose my entire family. That's not fair. <laughs> no, I think that match. That They're program, golden handcuffs, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think that a shift in like where the money goes. So maybe like I, I can't, I don't know the policy, but I think it would be cool if we could support the farmers in the transition to a regenerative practice. That would be huge. There's so much money that's going to the chemicals that aren't helping our earth. It's not healing that it could be just diverted and I think Kiss the Ground is working on something. The farm yeah. bill they just started is mm -hmm. so awesome. I was checking that out. Like, there's a lot of things that are starting to get into motion where I think that'll that's going to happen. It has to. Well, in just a few minutes, we're going to have Danny talking about um, how big a shift that is and, and maybe some steps that are starting to come into play to revise national farm policy. Um, Jessica, because I'm struck by actually what Appeals Product does is actually sort of anti-elitist in the sense that it's really trying to enable that, but how, how, would, how do you speak to that sort of idea that, you know, you're making fancy avocados that are expensive? <laughs> yeah, so um, appeal actually, like, doesn't cost more. You know, if you had an appeal avocado versus the same avocado without appeal in the store to the consumer, it's not going to cost more. Um, if you think about kind of the scale of the food waste challenge um, and you add up all the numbers, food waste costs the global economy $2.6 trillion dollars. That factors in the environmental and social costs, but about $1 trillion is just pure financial costs of wasting food. So if you can efficiently reduce that waste, there's a certain amount of cost savings that either the supplier or the retailer can make up um, so that they don't have to necessarily charge the, the consumer anymore. And really, most of, of our interest and theirs is to make produce more accessible, to have people spending a larger portion of their cart on fresh fruits and vegetables um, because of the nutrition outcomes as well. Um, one thing, though, that in in thinking about and more like kind of a first iteration, let's say, of dismantling the system, um, when you just, when you're talking about waste and you're just talking to one node in the supply chain or one stakeholder, it's really hard to solve any of the problems. Um, when we first developed Appeal and we went to some of the growers and we said, hey, we have this product, it can make your produce last twice as long, you know, isn't that great? Doesn't that create a lot of value for you? And a lot of them said, uh, not really, because the retailer's trash can is my best customer. <laughs> uh, so, you know, what we found and, you know, with a little bit more, you know, market um, research and conversations and was that we had to bring multiple groups to the table for it to be clear the value that this product could create. And it had to be clear that, okay, why this is valuable to the retailer, why that's strengthening their relationship with the supplier, how the consumer wins and all of that, and how actually if, if everyone is working together, everyone can get more value out of that system. But there's a lot of incentive structures baked in just because of how different um, pieces of the system have been optimized on their own. Um, one thing when you were talking about how, you know, there's also these environmental and social costs associated with all of these, uh, I guess, traditional practices that have been so embedded in the system. Um, the World Bank did a, a study, I think just last year, that showed that if you factor in like the human health costs 
um, and not all, but some of the environmental costs, the food system is an, a net loss system economically. It doesn't act like, so it, it definitely doesn't work, even if you're just looking at it economically. Um, I think that's just maybe more evidence that we really have to rethink the system. But even within one value chain, the incentive structures often aren't aligned and you really can only make change if everyone is coming to the table and seeing how rethinking the system can and can improve because there are there's so many inefficiencies and waste and externalities that when you actually bring everyone to the table maybe I'm an optimist but like I think everyone can end up better but you have to open up those dialogues and the system is not set up to do that yeah no I think that's very true and I think it goes back to the point Sarah made which everyone can make their own independent decisions about where their limits are but it's it's going to take a radical approach to change such a complexly embedded system. And I think my hope out of the pandemic was it so revealed the, the problems and the inequities. But I also think human nature is to return to the status quo as quickly as possible. And that's almost everyone's nature to get out of the pandemic is to make things normal. But I, I think one reason we're here is that this is such a big problem, we, we can't let up and we can't forget about it and go back to it. Thanks everyone for listening. We hope you enjoyed the opportunity to join us virtually at the 2022 Taste of Santa Barbara. Go to sbce.events, click on join the email list, and follow at SB Culinary Experience on Instagram for all the latest updates about future events and the 2023 Taste of Santa Barbara. For all the latest from the foundation, it's at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF, and I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at GBH. Thanks to my co-producer of the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Matt Patterson. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorny. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Inside Julia's Kitchen is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.